It's a big holiday everywhere. For the Jones family has a brand new heir. He's a joy, heaven sent, and they proudly present Mr. Franklin D. Roosevelt Jones. When he grows up, he never will stray. With a name like the one that he's got today. As he walks down the street, folks will say, please to meet Mr. Franklin D. Roosevelt Jones. What a smile and how he shows it. He'll keep happy all day long. Hello and welcome back to Weird Comics History, where we go over some weird comics history every other Sunday on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. You can pick us up on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or through two-way radio wristwatch. That was a tough one. I don't know why I used that. That was a tough one to say, Chris. Can't say it more than once. No, and I'm going to try not to. But uh, (laughs) this week we have kind of a strange one. It's not really a moment in comics history, but more a thing in comics history, and one that is Mm -hmm. totally relegated to history because we don't really see them anymore. Uh, Definitely not the ads that we're going to talk about. We're talking about comic book advertisements or rad ads, as Chris has called them on uh, his articles about comic book ads, which really I wanted to just, you know, say that uh, Chris recently put up, last week put up his 366 blog post on chrisisoninfiniteearth.blogspot.com. And in that he revealed his secret origin that he began writing reviews uh, and doing a little posting, I think, on the uh, WeirdScienceDCComics.com message board, which is defunct and is not. Yes, don't. It was short-lived. To, yeah, it was very short-lived. Do not try to register; it does not exist. Uh, but while it was there, he put up he put up a, a few, rev- a couple of reviews, I think, right? About uh, three or four. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I definitely remember at least looking at two. But I think I stopped looking at that message board after a while too. That was part of the problem. <laughs> Everyone did except me. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> at, at the bottom, you you would put in advertisements from the from comics, and that's what mm-hmm. really drew me. Uh, to want to read more of your stuff, and you do the same thing on your blog on chrisisoninfiniteearth.blogspot.com. Uh, and, you know, it's, it was something that really drew me because it, it, it's unusual. And a lot of times the advertisements in these comics, I, you remember a lot better than the stories. They just, like, jump out at you. You know, I, you know what I think sure. was the first one was that Qbert ad? From the 80s, I think you had that in one of your posts, and I was like... Could be, yeah. That's, like, that's the image I think of when I ever think of Qbert, <laughs> which, granted, is not often. But uh, <laughs> this is very true. But what I do, I think of the comic book ads. So uh, I wanted to give a little time to talk about some, you know, famous comic book ads that haven't run in comics. Gosh, I mean, when was the last time you saw these ads in comics? It's been at least twenty years, right? At least, yeah. I mean, uh, I think like uh, the last time I think I saw one of like the like the Charles Atlas style ads is uh, during like Marvel did that negative one month mm-hmm. back in like nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety eight where they were doing like retro before issue one type stories. Yeah, and they they did run a lot of like vintage like updated vintage ads and. I think that's like the last time I saw anything like this. Uh, you know, this is a well. We're going to be talking deeper into this, but it's this is a this is like a certain genre of head. Yeah. It just doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. Sadly, there's not really a place for it. We're going to surmise. No. There's not really you know you know an exact reason. You know, one reason why they stopped using them. It wasn't like you know, uh, but there's a few reasons why it stopped happening. But yeah, I mean, now it's all house ads and the occasional. 
campaign. Retail ed, yeah. Yeah, oh, you'll see Joe Kubert schools. Yeah. There'll be maybe Midtown Comics gets ads in there because they're huge. But uh, and then like Twix Bar, Twix Candies ran that campaign. Yeah, however long ago, uh, two years ago, or whatever. That was horrendous. Which was awful, but you know the half page. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That was one of the most boneheaded ideas DC or any publishers ever had. But uh, you know they. Um, it happens, but it's it's not like it used to be. And we implore anyone that has not looked at, a, you know, comics from 20, 30 years ago, you don't have to be an expensive one. Go to your comic shop, get the crappiest Marvel or DC comic, and thumb through it, and you will see examples of all three types of advertisements we're going to talk about today. Uh, first ones we're going to talk about, though, were some that really captivated my mind as a kid, and these were the karate ads. Uh, or Kung Fu, Learn Kung Fu. They had all kinds of great copy on them. Um, and so we're going to talk about a little bit about that. Now, Asian martial arts in general were introduced in America after President Ulysses S. Grant visited Japan in 1879. They did a judo demonstration. The first American to actually study judo came with Professor Ladd from Yale University in late 1889. He trained at the Kodokan in Japan for about 10 years. By 1908, about 13 Americans were training there. Within 30 years, judo became a regular part of police and military training, though the moves had terms like finger holds and pressure points that don't really apply to this discipline. Uh, this may have been the beginning of the urban legend about the kung fu death touch, which we will mm. talk more about later on. Even President Theodore Roosevelt uh, practiced judo. He earned a brown belt in the process, which I thought was pretty interesting since he was not what we'd call a svelte man. No, uh, not. you know, I, you know, not not a uh, Taft type of president, but still, <laughs> um, but still, even then, Asian martial arts were considered mostly arcane by most Americans, and there were few practitioners in the states to really warrant teaching it. You know, it was, it sure. was still a handful of people, and I guess police. Yeah, very, very niche. Uh, but that would change in the 1940s uh, when a sudden awareness of Asian or quote-unquote oriental culture came to Americans with the bombing of Pearl Harbor by Japan. That was, uh, of course, December 7th, 1941. Uh, to be fair, though, uh, the groundwork had been laid by, you know, you had those, uh, like those cereals, like the Charlie Chan cereals and whatnot. Uh, you had, uh, we had like the the yellow menace type of villains, like, you know, Ming the Merciless with the with the Fu Manchu and, yeah. um, and, and Flash Gordon. And uh, we also had increased immigration by East Asians, particularly the Japanese and Chinese, and primarily to the uh, West Coast. Uh, the other thing that made martial arts, Asian martial arts, more popular in the 40s was what we like to talk about, <laughs> comic books. <laughs> now, superheroes often used judo and other martial arts moves of du dubious origin. It yeah. was, I think it was just easy to say, oh, that's, you know, a judo pinch or a judo Ex throw. Exactly, yeah. Or, you, you know, it would do a jujitsu, you know, chop or something. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> And uh, they, they were the, uh, you know, here was the perfect venue for your mail-order karate business. Uh, <laughs> these were usually slim, very slim yeah. paperback books, uh, a far cry from the crude, minuscule pamphlets that would come later. That, those are the ones I'm talking about. Those yeah, the were one, those were really folded like piece of paper. Yeah, and yes. with, with uh, staples in them. This, this was something that was bound, but they were probably yeah. still about 64 pages. 
Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, some of these books, we got uh, Martel's Simplified Jiu-Jitsu. That was by Jules Martel in 1942. We got Self-Defense or Jiu-Jitsu by Dewey Mitchell in 1942. Police Jiu-Jitsu by Keito, Keito Fusiaka and Professor Butch in 1944. That. That's great. And How to Use Jiu-Jitsu by I.C. King, 1944. Uh, I find it interesting, though, that most of these names, except for uh, Keito Fusiaka, or a Western. Futsiaka are Western. Uh, it's just, it's just interesting that that I think that they, it would have de- delegitimized these books. You figure they throw like a Chan in there, yeah. like even you know, just just to yeah, like you said, just to legitimize it, just to but think I, you're getting think something exotic. Case, I think because of maybe the anti-Japanese the hysteria, yeah. but also because as we as we talked about, like you people's look at uh, Asian culture was stuff like Charlie Chan, so it wasn't. Really taken seriously, sure. they knew something mystic and weird was happening there, but they still wanted it told <laughs> to them by the uh, Americans. You know, <laughs> we need it translated. Yeah. Uh, now these books emphasize the mystique of Asian martial arts, and were not very effective or you know truthful. Uh, often uh, ads claim to teach paralyzing touches or the ability to break bricks with your hand, which was you know, I, I don't know that reading a pamphlet yeah <laughs> would endow you with the ability to pulverize a brick yeah well unless the instructions are uh continue pulverizing a brick until it or your hand breaks that that would be yes the only whichever st- breaks whichever first. breaks first that's <laughs> you know how it goes now after world war ii perhaps and this is just speculation but an anti-japanese sentiment or maybe just like rampant americanism through the 50s or just maybe sure. no good reason asian martial arts kind of was dormant for a while even in comic books and in a lot of popular media uh, there was a little bit, and there, there were some mail order uh, catalogs. Usually, these same ones from the '40s. Just you know, they just kept printing them, but it, it wasn't didn't explode too big. But by the mid '60s, Asian martial arts were poised to make a big comeback. Uh, for one thing, the baby boomers were now a mass of teenagers with an unusual amount of disposable income and a penchant yeah. for comic books. Uh, also, Mrs. Emma Peel of the TV show Avengers used judo throws. Charlton Comics debuted the Judo Master and Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt, both martial arts fighters, although Peter Cannon also was a gun user. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was 1965. Karnak, the Karate Master, debuted in 1965. That's Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's inhuman karate guy. Uh, But nothing was bigger than Bruce Lee's portrayal as Kato in the TV show Green Hornet. Despite it only running for one year in 1966, this is crazy to think of, huh? I know, but it it set people ablaze. You know, they were like, "Wow, kung mm-hmm. fu is is how to fight." Uh, you know, we could probably even go into, uh, you know, violence in America. You know, the Kent State thing happened in '66, right? And uh, mm-hmm. think so. more right, maybe people were feeling that they need to protect themselves. Uh, a lot of things ha- had to come together to make it happen, but it it happened all right. And the first outfits and ads to capitalize on this craze advertised the sacred martial art of Yubizawa. Mm. You ever do that one, Chris? You ever hear that one, Yubizawa? I'm not flexible enough. Well, I'll, uh, here's some copy from the ad. Boys, men, I'll help you master Yubizawa, says N.J. Fleming, Yubizawa master. Yubizawa is the secret, amazingly easy art of self-defense that turns just one finger of your hands into a potent weapon of defense without any bodily contact. Inset in these ads was a picture of N.J. Fleming's wife, Yoshi Imanami, who states, I weigh only 98 pounds, yet I can paralyze a 200-pound attacker (laughs) with just a finger, because I know Yubizawa. 
Interesting. Mm. Is she poke him in the eye? I don't know. know. Well, actually, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to what some of those pressure holds were. But... Now, uh, Nelson Fleming was probably the first uh, comic book sensei and apparently did no serious martial arts. Uh, he trained in uh, Sosushi Ryu Jiu-Jitsu and Kodokan Judo, uh, in which he actually had a third-degree black belt. And he had good intentions to boot. Uh, the story that is that the publisher of Yubizawa, the company uh, was precise. We don't know the name of the guy. No. Uh, you know, signed up at the Fleming's at Fleming's New Jersey school for six months of private lessons in 1960. During that time, he convinced Fleming to write a book about his techniques. He would get $200 for this. Uh, mm-hmm. However, get no further input on the sales or marketing. Of what he'd written. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> Mr. Fleming was visited by uh, something. Like yeah. <laughs> um, no surprise, Yubizawa is not an actual martial art, uh, but loosely translates to finger techniques and applies the most facile aspects of jujitsu and judo. Uh, calling Yubizawa a martial art is kind of like calling uh, punching a martial art. <laughs> Many of these uh, pressure point strikes require absolutely no training. You know, for example, a kick to the groin or an eye gouge. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that ancient martial art of eye gouging. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so of, uh, the low, the, the, yes, the sacred order of the low blow. Yeah, you know, yeah no, no one had thought of that until, uh, you know, the cross. We, we crossed cultures, but wow. This is true. Uh-huh. This is true. <laughs> now, Fleming, he wasn't too pleased with this. Uh, for one thing, his 100-page book had been slimmed down to 14 pages by the publisher. A lot of that hitting the floor, huh? Uh, For another thing, um, it was hawking a martial arts discipline that he didn't actually endorse and didn't actually exist. Uh, It was also more intended for women, not the uh, boys, men, not even boys to men, uh, solicited in the advertisements. Uh, In the November to December 1964 issue of Black Belt Magazine, Fleming noticed that he was especially annoyed at the publisher's creation of a Ubisoft Federation. Uh, so every customer became a member of it, and it didn't even exist. But now, didn't it so, sort of come into existence by everyone becoming a member? Like suddenly, now you do have a federation. Just got to get all the get all the customers together in the same room. Yeah, they just have to. They, they we just need a tournament. Yeah. <laughs> we need title belts. Um, now Fleming was uh, able to rehabilitate his name, and he became a successful teacher and representative of the American Soshuishi Ryu uh, until his death in 1987. The next pigeon to be exploited by Precise Publishing was Wallace W. Ruman, who was a soldier for most of his young adulthood and chained in Chito Ryu Karate under senseis Hank Slamanki and Fukamoto for five and a half years while stationed in Japan. His ads claimed he returned to the States with a fifth-degree black belt, though other sources say that took place later, around 1965. Upon returning from Japan, he did open some karate schools in New Jersey and later in California and founded the American Karate Federation. He was actually still in the Army while getting his karate schools and mail-order business off the ground, though, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, Lee Frank, who worked with him briefly in the intelligence mailroom during the mid-1960s, said this about Ruman in his unpublished autobiography, Guess I Guess That's Me, A Reflection, in 2003. Uh, did I mention Wally was impressive? Six foot two, shoulders requiring special tailoring, a crew crut that looked like it could take paint off the wall, and the biggest hands I ever saw, or shook. Those hands were also the strongest I'd ever seen. Other people in the office used the new electric typewriters. Wally used a monster manual Olympic typewriter whose keys I could barely depress. Seated at the Olympic, Wally's hands played a rapid rat-tat-tat, rat-tat-tat, not unlike a machine gun in both speed and power. 
Ruman may have been the real deal, but his ad's promises were nonsense. Here's some uh, lovely copy again. I'll make you a master of karate. Karate is the secret oriental art of self-defense that turns your hands, arms, legs into paralyzing weapons without any bodily contact. With do you, you ever see bodily contact in a karate match, Chris? Never. No. Never. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, they're able to do it all just by their mind. With karate, <laughs> you can disarm and disable two, three, and even four attackers. You can what apply. If a fifth shows up. Yeah. You can apply. <laughs> that's what. That's where it falls apart. <laughs> you can apply a simple pressure of your thumb and finger against one of a dozen vital nerve centers of your opponent, and watch his gun or knife fall from his limp hand while he himself sinks to the ground, completely helpless and faint. What would you do if you were insulted by a bully? Of it, uh, or if three or four hoodlums passed remarks about your girl, or if you were suddenly mugged from behind, or if someone came at you with a baseball bat. If you're like millions of Americans, you'd be absolutely helpless, and you'd be ashamed, humiliated, robbed, beaten, kicked, and pitiful in the eyes of your girl or friends. So I think they're sort of, you know, uh, needling a certain Shaming customer. You yeah, a little bit, you know. <laughs> basically, whoever's calling you a girly man to your face while you read the thing. <laughs> uh, Ruman's ads liberally, liberally use the words like forbidden and secret and played up the Orientalism, quote-unquote, that spawned these disciplines. And considering the longevity of his campaign, which was still running when I was a kid, as I remember, the uh, I'll teach you karate, I remember those, or... Uh, he can hardly be considered a real victim of precise publishing. I think he bought in, let's say. Yeah, he, <laughs> he saw what yeah. was making money, and he went for it. Yes, he, uh, he, he made his way here. <laughs> uh, in uh, 1966, S. Hank Roberts published Kutsugu through uh, John Smith Publishing, though no one can confirm as to whether H. Hank Roberts actually existed. <laughs> we got some, uh, we got some uh, copy here. Mm -hmm. Defend yourself with Kutsugu. Kutsugu gives you all the combined arts of self-defense found in Judo, Atiwata, Akedo, and Aki... What is it? I, 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 think, I think it's Aikiso. It's Aikiso, Aik that's the one with the spears, I think. Yeah, um, you say it maybe, but it also could be nothing, because Ketsugo is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. We, we also have uh, Yawara, Savat, that is something, yeah. and uh, Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, learn fast and easy without all the quote-unquote mumbo-jumbo. We already got a little mumbo-jumbo. Isn't that here. great? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ariwasa is uh, Kutsugo's phony name for Yabizawa. Uh, Max Stein Publishing, a novelty publishing outfit in Chicago, produced a pitiful pamphlet called Jiu-Jitsu, which cribbed pre Previously published material, partially from a Martel Simplified Jiu-Jitsu and Simplified Jiu-Jitsu, uh, the books of the 1940s. Uh, this book turns up in full-page ads for Anna House and Elbaugh Distribution of Niagara Falls, New York, alongside other uh, cheap titles, advertising lessons in uh, things like magic, hypnosis, fortune-telling, uh, the secrets to winning in poker, and a whole lot of joke books uh, with, you know, silly racy titles here. Kind of like, uh, we have, like, Confessions of a French Stenographer. That's a that's a good one. Yeah, which uh, it's, it's just a collection of the author's personal and non-racy correspondence. Yeah, letters to his mother and stuff. I mean, you know, <laughs> pretty much <laughs> dictated to a stenographer. Yes, who just happened to be French. Mm -hmm. uh, we got some more copy here. You too could be tough, master jujitsu, and you'll win any fight. This book gives you all the grips, blocks, etc., which are so effective in counterattacking a bully or holdup. You don't need big muscles or weight. Know how? Know how makes you a sure winner. 
I mean, I just love, it's just like they're assuming right from the outset, you're not tough. That you're a wimp. Yeah, yes. we know you're tough. You can be tough, though, if you, you know, buy this. But as of today, you are not tough. So. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, this, you know, this all built up. But in the 1970s, martial arts was a huge fad, especially in the first half of the 70s. Oh, sorry. And comics characters reflected that. At Marvel, they had Iron Fist and Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. At DC, they had Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter. Co-created by Denny O'Neill under the pseudonym Jim Dennis. The other co-creator was Jim Berry. This was an original character from a novel that they wrote adapted to comics. Now the ads were less about self-defense at this time and more about total offense, often advertising the ability to learn the dim mock or the death touch, which comes up in one of Jim Warner's favorite movies, Bloodsport. Uh, here's some of my favorite copy here. Their forbidden and secret training manual of the Black Dragon Fighting Society has never been for, never before been available to anyone outside of the society. Recent attempts for regular publication and public exposure have been rejected as the contents were considered horrifyingly dangerous and brutally vicious. Yes, this is the deadliest and most terrifying fight, fighting art known to man, and without equal. It's maiming, mutilating, disfiguring, <laughs> paralyzing, and crippling techniques are known by only a few people in the world. This is the only book ever written on Dim Mok. An expert at Dim Mok, the most advanced form of Kung Fu, could easily kill many Judo, Karate, Kung Fu, Aikido, and Gung Fu experts at one time with only fingertip pressure using his murderous poison hand weapons. Instructing you step by step through each move in this manual is none other than Count Dante, the deadliest man who ever lived, the crown prince of death. So that really speaks to me, you know? <laughs> it does, it does. It's like, I wow. gotta go find some people. Yeah, maiming, mutilating, disfiguring, and crippling? <laughs> well, you had, All at me, once. you had me at maiming. Uh, <laughs> evidence actually suggests through interviews that Count Dante actually spoke like this. Like, this is the way he talked in, in That's amazing. Life. <laughs> <laughs> he was a, uh, and I remember these ads, too. I, not, not, not that I lived through them, but I have read quite a few books oh, yeah. with his they, ads in them. Get a comic from, like, the, any time in the 70s, you'll see it. Yeah, and, and it will stand out for the reasons we're about to go over here. Uh, this guy was a Bronze Age comics pioneer for using red and black ads. These things stuck out like a sore thumb. Because uh, other advertisers went with, like, one or four-color uh you know, ads. But never, found but never a stark two color. You know what I mean? That was no. the, that was the thing. I think, yeah. And it was just so eye-catching. Um, he found this design that made his ads stand out, among others, and made him look even more evil and brutal. And he did look evil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's yeah. a crazy-looking dude. A guy with an afro and a beard that looked like he was just about to, but about to pull the dim mock on you in about two he was, seconds. Yeah, yeah he was going to poke you somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, now, two of Count Dante's ads have a form for the customer to fill out where he promises to use his future powers only in self-defense. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you have to swear that you're, you only use it to, right. to help yourself. Even you can maim and cripple. You can't just walk around doing that. At a moment's notice. Uh, now, if you doubted the potency of Dimmock, we can make a $10,000 guarantee that this book is deadlier than any other book, manual, or course ever printed anywhere at any cost, and that it was, as mentioned before, refused past publication due to its fer extremely ferocious nature. Insane. Wow. <laughs> Now, 
know, Count Dante, unfortunately, uh, you know, he was the crown prince, prince of death, and he died yeah, in 1975. Yeah. He, he ascended to his throne. He got his, his uh, inheritance, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, uh, even though he did pass away in 1975, his school did persist. And a lawsuit against Mailor's Mail order sensei Joe Weider, uh, who advertised mainly in wrestling and boxing magazines. Therefore, we're not going to go too much into his insane head copy. It's too bad, though. Um, I, I do know that my first weight set was a Joe Weider weight set. Oh, God. I mean, his uh, his things, they it, like they combine both belittling you and telling yes. you how quickly you're going to be able to murder your enemies. It's like, it's it's unbelievable. But yeah, they were not... In any comics, and with and with good reason, you got to remember the comics code was still in place, folks, and sure. that actually did apply to the advertisements also. So it did, it yeah. did, and I, <laughs> but I, he he got he got to me. I uh, I carried a uh, weight set home from Sports Authority, walked about three miles with a hundred and change pounds wow. that's, that's on my you, shoulder. That's how you got that's, that chest. That's that's exactly how I got that. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Asian martial arts remained popular, though not as wildly as in the early 70s. Uh, by the mid-1980s, every town in America seemed to have, you know, a karate studio or a judo facility, a dojo, uh, which kind of made these mail-order uh, courses redundant. Yeah, it's that's pretty much what happened. Uh, you know, karate started in darkness, but now it is typical. And now, uh, you know, kids are enticed to go to karate for, you know, uh, exercise, and exercise, yep. everything but maiming and crippling your opponents. Uh, and you know, <laughs> it, it's good. It's 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 good. It's definitely a good exercise. But these uh, these books are really a throwback. And if you ever get your hands on these books, you you, you can find them at conventions, or you can find them. A lot of places you'd be surprised. The antique stores will have these these books, and they, uh, they still make you sign the agreement. They still you still have to sign the agreement. <laughs> it's legally binding. I will not kill with these uh, murderous maneuvers. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's too bad. It's kind of uh, maybe that's part of what neutered comics was no longer no more enticing promises to bloody your opponents. But and uh, friends. That's right. <laughs> but another thing that in, in comics so ubiquitous were these ads for novelties. Uh, you yes. know, fly in the ice cube and the, the joy buzzer and all this stuff. And uh, it, yep. amazingly, the main person, the main company in, in all most of the comics that we've ever read was a fella named S.S. Adams that we're going to talk about. His uh, real name was Soren Sorensen Sam Adams. He was born May 24th, 1879 in Kolding, Midtjylland, Denmark, to his parents, Hans and Sophia. Hans was a clog maker. What a cliche. Yeah, I know, really. I think it's a, <laughs> one of two. You can either be a clog maker or you can be a windmill fan. A clog wearer. That's yeah. basically it. <laughs> or, you gotta, or you can be someone that does braids. Uh, now, when Soren was two, they moved to America and settled in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, which had a large Scandinavian population at the time. Hans opened a saloon there. In 1904, Soren was employed as a salesman for a dye company, and one of the dyes made customers sneeze. And Soren seized on an idea. He extracted the sneeze-making stuff and called it Kachu Sneezing Powder. He was inundated with requests for it, so he sold his stake in a hotel in Pennsylvania, and... Uh, opened the Kachu Sneezing Powder Company in Plainfield, New Jersey. During his first year, Soren sold 150,000 bottles of Kachu at 10 cents apiece. People hmm. really thought this was a good gag, folks. Let me tell you. They, <laughs> wow, it can make people sneeze. Uh, a re although a retailer in Philadelphia did order 70,000 vials himself, and these were used to wreak havoc across the country at, 19, at political conventions in 1908, which I think is oh, hilarious. Wow. Uh, it's almost like a uh, subversive act or something. 
Yes. The label read, it's harmless, it only makes you sneeze. But in the early 1940s, the FDA banned the selling of Catu's principal ingredient, dianacidine, due to its toxicity. Dianacidine was even used as a chemical weapon during World War I. The Germans would salt their mortar shells with it to make Allied forces sneeze themselves silly while bleeding to death. And I just want you to, without, I don't want to get too gory, but I want you to think about if you had gotten hit, PCU is open, parts are hanging out. And you're sneezing. Yes. Like uncontrollably. You can see how this would become messy. Messy very rapidly. Uh, the ingredient was replaced by finely ground pepper. And it was never the same. Never as good, I bet, yeah. <laughs> now, by uh, 1908, Soren renamed his company the SS Adams Co. and branched out to other novelties. One of Adam's best ideas wasn't a prank, but to hire well known cartoonist and illustrator Louis M. Glackens. Uh, born in 19, I'm sorry, in 1866 in Philadelphia, he was a well-known illustrator for Puck Magazine, and in 1914 worked for the Barry Studio in Bright Productions for some of the earliest animated shorts. Uh, he was also a book illustrator, providing drawings for Monsieur and Madame by Marcel Prevost and uh, George. Who is it? How are we going to say George, George Scott? I don't Georges, know. Georges Scott. These are French uh, names, folks, because you couldn't tell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and it's all Greek to me. Uh, public, <laughs> these were published in Paris uh, by Artem Fayard, uh, 19, uh, 1900, and The Log of the Water Wagon by Bert Leston Taylor and W.C. Gibson, published by H.M. Caldwell and Company in 1905. He would pass away in 1933. Uh, these images used in ads uh, and on packaging, they're st and they're still used by the company to this day. Mm -hmm. and he, and uh, a lot of these cartoons are the ones that we saw. Sure, As sure. Kids, or when you look at an 80s comic, even, these are the same, same, you know, at that yeah. point, like 50 year old drawings. Yeah, where it's like, uh, yeah, you, what is it, you like a 10 cent or a dollar each for these little, little drawings in little boxes. Yeah. Um, now, freed from being a purveyor of kachu sneezing powder only, Adams would invent uh, several novelties and pranks that are still, you know, common today. Uh, we got a few here we'll list off here. We have the racket exploding cigarette box. It goes off with a bang. Cure those moochers. <laughs> so uh, next time someone asks you for a cig, you, you give them that box. Bang, yeah. Uh, of course, we still have our itching powder, which, you know, is originally a toxic material banned by the FDA, converted to uh, finely ground hairs, Yeah. which is kind of gross. It's even grosser than a toxic material, but I guess, yeah, it's know, like whatever. It's like I, I got, you know, five million hairs on my head, but if I see one on, like, a table, I'm like, whoa. Uh, and also uh, someone else's hair. I don't, I don't really Oh, even that, worse. It's all part of a prank, I guess. I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, you think I got you? I got mm -hmm. you twice. Yeah. Uh, we also have uh, stink bombs, uh, a bingo shooting device in 1907, snake in the jam in 1908, uh, better known today as the snake in the peanut brittle can, like you open it up and the spring-loaded snakes shoot out. Yeah. Uh, the dribble glass, a classic in 1909. The bar bug in the ice cube, uh, the money maker. It's blank paper through one end. You, you you run it through a set of rollers, and it comes out as money. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the squirting nickel and the jumping coin. Uh, Adams would actually patent a number of these pranks in 1914. Yeah, and also, I don't know if it comes up again, but when, when we say shooting, for some reason in the early uh, 20th century, shooting meant so anything that gives off a big bang. So yeah. these things wouldn't actually shoot; they would just no, no. bang. I don't know, but <laughs> they would just snap. Yeah. But I, I looked it up anyway. I saw a bingo shooting device. I'm picturing like a, a bingo card with a BB in it, but now it's just, a, it just makes a noise. Yeah, uh, it's a snapper. 
1919, Adams hooked up with Theodore L. DeLand Jr., an engraver at the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia and creator of trick playing cards. Born 1873, he licensed his cards to the Misto Magic Company in 1911. S.S. Adams bought out his contract in 1919 and greatly expanded the line. DeLand died in an insane asylum in Norristown, Pennsylvania on January 25, 1931, but the cards continued to be made. I love a happy ending. Yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. <laughs> in, uh, in 1928, S.S. Adams invented the Joy Buzzer based on an earlier prank called the Watchwinder, which would make people think their pocket watch was overwound. He went to a tool and die maker in Dresden, Germany to make the minuscule parts needed to make it work. Legend has it the manufacturer planned to use the money to flee Nazi Germany, but Adams never heard from him after they had their transaction, so we could imagine it was good news. We don't know what happened. Sure. Uh, the Joy Buzzer was patented in 1932 and sold so well, earning $144,000 in one wow. year. Wow. In 1932 of all... Of all During the Depression, yeah. yeah. Uh, that Adams was able to buy a new factory building in Neptune, New Jersey, you know, while other people's fortunes were being destroyed. So it worked out. Uh, I might have a... There was a, another weird fact about the Joy Buzzer. You ever, you ever get a Joy Buzzer as a kid? Yeah. And you probably were disappointed that it didn't work at all. That, yeah, it was awful. Like, it was the worst. It never tricked anybody. Well, I, I actually found out that the patent lapsed in 19, right around 1950. And mm. after that, it was... Anybody made, can make it. Anybody made it, and they started making these knockoffs. And so for many years, uh, it was actually cheaper for SS Adams to sell the knockoffs in their packaging. And they did oh, that. Oh, how about that? They just, they just said, screw it, we don't care. But apparently now they make something called the Super Joy Buzzer, which is back to the original specifications. Hmm. Uh, I, almost, I almost, you know, here I am now, a 42-year-old man. I'm like, hmm, should I get a Super Joy Buzzer? <laughs> but yeah, these things, I always wanted them, they, you know, in the cartoons, you, know, you shake someone's hand, it's like electricity shoots through them. You see the skeleton inside them, exactly. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and in real life, people are like, what the hell is that? That big bulky ugly thing in your hand, eh? And you have to get, and you have to get like a really really strong shake yeah. to get it to do anything. To get it to do anything, and then it's like by by the time you press that metal into their hand, the the prank is done. Like you're not it's gonna done. get them. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, it was it was. I I I'm, I might do some research, and if I do, I'll come back and let you all know how the super joy buzzer does. <laughs> <laughs> some uh, some field research. Mm -hmm. uh, now uh, Adams, not to be undone, he sold. He also sold magic tricks, uh, most of which predated the company. Uh, but Adams was the first to make many of these tricks affordable. Previously, people would have to build their own devices to apply their magic. Uh, Adams did invent a few tricks, like the uh, Chinese prayer vase, uh, an amazing act, an amazing act in magic, an enjoyable enchanting act suitable for any occasion. That's, that's what I call my presence. Anyway. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> color divination. Uh, you can detect an arrangement of colors through a closed metal box concealed in someone's pocket. Most mystifying of all tricks. And the magical imp bottle. You can make it lie on its side, but no one else can do it. I don't remember any of these. I remember that, and I think only because the word imp was in it. And I just used to, <laughs> and I used to imagine in my mind, like, are they really selling an imp? What is an imp, you know? But I do remember that name of it, but uh, yeah. Is the uh, is the praise prayer vase? Is it a finger trap? Which one? <laughs> the Chinese prayer vase. Is that a Chinese finger trap? To be honest, from what I could tell, I think it's exactly the same thing as the imp bottle. As far as it's some, <laughs> it's something. It's like the way you lie it down. Obviously, like if you know the trick, you can make it lie down. Otherwise, it, it pops back up. There's who knows exactly. I don't really how it works, but <laughs> that's all I could tell. Like you know, they didn't tell me the uh, secrets of all of these 
amazing you're not, they're not allowed to no exactly you didn't sign the release for that either yeah, they would have to leave um, the magician's union yes <laughs> now uh, early on adams and his competitors were targeted by obscenity laws uh, beginning first with warrants uh, served to novelty shops uh, these cases were largely thrown out of court by the time they got to uh, Adams's level, because uh, you know he was he was very successful. He could afford lawyers who could defend him. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, some of the items normally targeted by these laws included the Privy Station, the Naughty that. Elephant. Yeah. I, I don't know what that is. I would is, yeah, love but... to know what those two are. I have no idea, but I could not find out. I'm gonna get Naughty Elephant put on a on a, ba- a football jersey, <laughs> uh, and a laughing tissue, a roll of toilet paper with funny cartoons on them, uh, which is strange. Yeah, I don't know why that would be obscene. Um, initially, SS Adams novelties were sold in novelty and magic shops and by mail order. Indeed, their mail order catalogs would be another uh, another show in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, they had, they <laughs> so, had dozens. They were all wildly different. It was obviously a big production for them to do. A new sure. one every year, or even more than once every year, it was crazy. Absolutely, um, but by the uh, nineteen into the nineteen forties, they began advertising in comic books, and that's when the company exploded, making Soren a millionaire in nineteen forties. That's uh, fairly. Uh, oh oh that's, yeah, that's pretty decent. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I mean, it, the money didn't drain out after that. I mean, it kept coming, boy, until sure, you know, sure. his passing. Yeah, and uh, these were some of the most memorable ads in comics, largely due to the images of uh, Lewis Glackens. Uh, despite intense uh, competition, often by, from cheaper manufacturers overseas, S.S. Adams were nearly the only novelty manufacturers to advertise in comics from the 50s on. Uh, Adams never retired, mm-hmm. uh, but he did pass away in Asbury Park, New Jersey, in, on October 20th, 1963, at age 84. Uh, the company does continue to this very day, and you could visit their website. It is magicmakersinc.com. Yep, and that will be in the show notes. And uh, you should give it a look. They do a little bit of their history, and it's amazing. Pretty much every novelty we've talked about, some of them have changed their names. The Chinese vase. It's no, you know, no more Oriental stuff in the uh, yeah. in the catalog, yeah, we, but it's, it's we're more enlightened these days. Yes, it's all still there, so you can definitely be. And and as I recall, the people with these novelties were always the most popular and beloved, right? Isn't that right, Chris? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the most popular kid in class with my terrible joy buzzer. Exactly, and you came out with you know the squirting flower. Who doesn't love that gets squirted in the eye with a uh, jet of water? <laughs> Anyway, uh, so that's that's our you know opening salvo of a couple of uh, pervasive ads. But our our the second half of the show, our second act will be someone more familiar, I think, to many of you out there. A fellow that helped to make a man out of a Mac. Mm-hmm. But we are going to take and a little a, break and a champ out of a chump. That's right. He did a couple of a lot of a lot of changes made because of this gentleman, and he's got a <laughs> he's got a really interesting life, and uh, we'll get into it. But first, we're going to take a little quick break, and we'll come back and talk at you. Say hello to Mr. Matu Panagopoulos. Matu, yeah. Well, <laughs> Matu, how you doing? I'm good. Yeah. So you knew Charles Atlas? Well, he lived down the block. He uh, he and his wife and, and the kids. Yeah, but I mean, you knew him. Matu, man, you told me before the show that you and Charles Atlas were close. You were friends. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we were close. You know, uh, that uh, that wasn't his his real name. 
when he when he when he come to this country, his name was Angelo Angelo Siciliano. So he was Italian. Yeah, man, obvious. And he didn't always look like that with that awesome body. He was a skinny little guy. He really did weigh ninety seven pounds. I mean, in those days, he was hungry all the time. You told me you worked for him. That you were a copywriter for those famous comic book ads. The comics, yeah, I read the comics all the time. I knew the style. The first one I wrote was uh, the insult that made a man out of Mac. I wrote that. You did. What was the storyline in that one? Well, story, uh, such as it is, there's this skinny, scrawny, weak little guy with his ribs uh, sticking out, see? And he's at the beach with his girl, big, sexy brunette. And this terrifically built, good-looking guy rolls up and, you know, kicks sand in his face and just generally humiliates him. The girlfriend, uh, she's all ashamed. She just goes home alone. Later, you think, uh, well, maybe the girlfriend and this other guy hooked up, but that never happened. Wait, she didn't go out with that good-looking guy? Because we always thought... Yeah, uh, a lot of people thought something happened with them, too, but nothing happened, all right? She just goes home and uh, leaves him on a beach. Leaves him on the beach. Okay, that's the setup. Exciting. Then what happens? Well, that little punk guy goes home, and uh, this is the part that I'm most proud of. He kicks a chair. A chair? A wooden chair. Like you find on a sidewalk with a sign that says, Free, take me, with different color paint drips all over it. And you take it home, and it becomes your favorite chair. Across the room, he kicks it. And then he gambles a stamp. Nobody knows why it's supposed to be such a big gamble, a three-cent stamp. Big deal, <laughs> right? Gets the Charles Atlas program in the mail. Right away, like in the next panel even, he's all super musculated, and he's uh, back at the beach the next weekend, and he kicks that big, good-looking guy's ass and takes his girl back, and she goes, oh, Mac, you're a real man after all. It's a super happy ending there. Yes, I remember that, and the character, the scrawny guy, that was based on the young Charles Atlas story, right? No, well, uh, actually, uh, that, uh, that was based on me. Oh, I always thought it was... Uh... It was me. See, a lot of people think it's him, but it was me. Before, I was a brilliant physical specimen you see before you today and all buff like this here. I was a spindly skinny guy too with no skills or chops whatsoever. 92 pounds, 5 pounds less than Mr. Big Stuff Charles Atlas. A stiff wind comes along and I'm all up in the trees. And I wasn't getting anything. No girls on the beach, nothing. Pathetic. A classic story. But the next year, you improved on that first ad. In the comics, you made it even better and it uh, really came alive, didn't it? Oh, I guess you could say that. In 1941, there was the insult that turned a chump into a champ. The tension is that she's drawn so incredibly sexy. And he's hardly even there, nervous, sweating, he's such a wuss. Yeah, you wonder uh, what they're doing together. Yeah, that's right. Nothing going on there. The big guy uh, shows up and actually shoves the little guy out of the frame and takes the sexy girl away. Well, he don't so much take her as she just goes off with him because he's such a better catch than Joe. And Joe goes home, but instead of kicking the chair this time around, he pounds the table and nothing happens. In fact, he hurts his hand. And then he gambles a three-cent stamp, very important, goes to the program, becomes an Adonis in about five minutes. Then he goes back to the fair and breaks the good-looking guy's jaw. Breaks his jaw? Well, that certainly makes the point. Yeah, he really messes the guy's face up. And he walks off with two girls hanging all over him. Everybody's all cheering. What a guy. He's famous in the neighborhood. And this is way before your internet. Oh, we got back then for celebrity gossip, Walter Winchell and them Navajo cold talkers. Maybe uh, Earl Wilson in the post. Powerful. Well, I guess there's no way to top that. Well, actually, two years later, I write, How Jack the Weakling Slaughtered the Dance Hall Bully. Great title.
Thanks. <laughs> this time, uh, the little guy, the weakling, and his girlfriend are dancing in the ballroom on the pier. The good-looking guy's jaw is all healed up, and he bumps into Jack, like, on purpose, and comments about what a puny, disgusting little toy the guy Jack is. The little guy? You're paying attention, right? Oh, yeah. And the big guy says, get this, you're not even worth scuffing my shoes, kicking your ass. Nice touch. Yeah, I thought so, too. The little guy goes back to his miserable apartment, kicks the chair, gambles a stamp, etc., and so forth. Which really raises the bar for comic book advertising. Yeah, see, before us, it was all sea monkeys, a hundred army men, a little cardboard footlock over a buck and a quarter, x-ray specs that were supposed to let you look through girls' clothing and stuff, but no way could you do that. It was just a rip-off. With dynamic tension, the Atlas program, a lot of people get into bodybuilding to get the goils. And, Matu, you really knew Charles Atlas. You aren't just putting us on with that, right? Right down the block, he lived the regular guy, wife and kids, fought motor car, potted plants in the window boxes, loved the Dodges, subscribed to Life magazine, you know, the whole ballpark. All right, and we're going to come right back with some more rad ad information for you. This one is something that should be familiar to a lot of people that have read even fairly recent magazines. You still see this uh, advertised because it's a company still in existence, and that's Charles Atlas. He was born Angelo Siciliano on October 30th, 1892. I guess, you know what? He was Italian. I don't know if you could I know. think so, maybe. Yeah. In the uh, town of Acri Calabria in southern Italy to, to parents Santo and Francis Siciliano. After the premature death of a younger brother named Vincent, the Sicilianos emigrated to New York, arriving at Ellis Island on September 11th, 1903. They stayed with some relatives in Brooklyn. Uh, Papa Santo didn't like the cramped tenements of Brooklyn and went back to Calabria almost immediately. Francis yeah. shacked up with an uncle, possibly a quote-unquote uncle, and reverted to her maiden name, Palomani, according to a 1940 U.S. census. Angelo attended the Italian settlement house where he was a frequent target for bullies. The Italian settlement house was created by Reverend William Eve Davenport in 1901, and it was to help Italian immigrants settle. Uh, you know, teach him English and, you know, uh, customs or whatever. Eventually, he would stop attending school and became so weak that he couldn't climb the front steps of his building, and he had frequent nosebleeds. I think today he would be diagnosed with anxiety and or depression, especially resulting from bullying, because you don't necessarily waste away to nothing from not going yeah. to school. As I can tell you, having cut school in high school a lot, and I did not waste away to nothing. <laughs> Uh, but it's, you know, this didn't, you know, I think it was something deeper rooted, but of course, such diagnosis didn't really exist, so uh, he, they didn't really know what to do with him. On a day trip to the Brooklyn Museum, Angelo saw a statue of the Greek god Hercules, and the rest is history. No, wait a minute, there's more to the story. <laughs> no, uh, Reverend Davenport, seeing Angelo's interest in, you know, being ripped, took him to the uh, YMCA. Uh, Angelo couldn't afford to be a member, though, and uh, he created his own pulley system at home and a dumbbell made from a broom handle and two rocks. Uh, in 1908, Angelo quit school when he turned 16. He also adopted the nickname Charlie by this time. Don't know where you get that from, but we'll no, go with it anyway. Fine. I don't know. <laughs> and the story goes, one day he took a pretty girl to Coney Island. While there, a lifeguard made fun of him punched him, kicked sand on him, and stole his girlfriend. 
I think we're going to decide that this is 100% true. I, would, right? I really want to believe it's true. And, of course, it, fi <laughs> it figures in later on. That's why. But uh, yeah. <laughs> No, uh, Charlie, he found uh, work at a leather factory where he made ladies' pocketbooks. Uh, this gave him a little pocket money to buy a physical culture magazine uh, published by the health and fitness guru Bernard McFadden. Uh, he was born Bernard Adolphus McFadden in Mill Spring, Missouri, August 16th, 1868. This was uh, America's first uh, body beautiful kind of guy yeah. in, in you know in the country here. First guy to really promote exercise. Uh, like Adonis, yeah. Yeah, to become like super buff, you know. It wasn't mm -hmm. really a thing before that. And uh, one Halloween night, uh, therefore the day before, the day after his birthday, a local bully dragged him into an alley and beat him with a sock full of ashes. Wow. That's pretty pretty brutal. Yep. Uh, he dragged himself home, and his uncle beat him up some more. He'll give him something to cry about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, was, I think that was literally what it was, though. It was like, quit I'm crying, sure. stop getting in fights. This will teach, like, okay, yeah, punching me will help. Well, that night, he took a sacred vow. He vowed never to let another man touch him again. And then a bat in flew in the window. And, oh, wait, wait, that was another guy. <laughs> no, then a rocket ship landed. In the oh, all right. Uh, in 1909, Charlie visited the, Bro the Brooklyn Zoo and observed a lion stretching. Uh, Charlie surmised that the lion got its lithe body not from lifting weights, but from resistance. Maybe dynamic resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, he began attending the Strongman Show at Coney Island, and he would grill the performers about their exercise regimens and diets. Uh, when he finally got that membership to the YMCA, uh, but he still preferred exercises without the apparatus. Uh, he was particularly fond of push-ups and the dip, which he would do, uh, which he'd often do using the back of a chair. And that's a that's a tough one here. It's like a, it works your. Uh, not your biceps, but the other ones. Your, your triceps, and it also works. <laughs> Those also works like the backs. I don't know what the muscles. Your are. hamstrings. The, yeah, yeah, the hamstrings and the backs of your thighs that are tough to work out. You know, it's, it's the kind of exercise. Uh, the first time you do it, you you really regret it, but you got to. You know it. You yeah. got to keep going with that one. Here. <laughs> now, within one year, he bulked up from ninety-seven pounds to one hundred and fifty pounds. Uh, and he started getting tough. Uh, he'd eventually thrash the bully that beat him up in the alley. Uh, is according to Charlie, of course. Yeah. Well, that's a huge. I mean, that's a huge gain in one year. You know, ninety-seven, one fifty. I mean, that's that's not an average gain. I don't know what his diet was like, but uh, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive stuff. It was hard-boiled eggs and tuna fish. Probably, I thought definitely <laughs> protein was in there. Uh, I, I just want to do a little, talk a little bit about vaudeville circus strongmen of the early 1900s. Now, a vaudeville was a type of theater entertainment that was basically a variety show. Hugely popular in America from about 1860 to the 1920s. You know, it, this was a time, this was a huge theater explosion, especially on the <laughs> East Coast. But none of those theaters showed traditional plays. It was all for vaudeville. Like, you know, sometimes five or six to a block doing vaudeville shows. And uh, one of the potential acts in the, on these vaudeville shows were strongmen. These were men that performed physical feats. These fellows would also be at the circus, too, usually at the sideshow, sometimes with their own tent, you know, their own, like, area to go to, you know, go see mm -hmm. the strongmen. They would throw the crowd by busting chains, holding difficult poses while lifting weights, and taking cannonballs to the stomach. But there were also, these were also the examples of health and fitness of the day. I mean, this was your 1910 Jack LaLanne. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, this was the guy you looked to for, you know, what do you eat for dinner? We want to uh, be able to take cannonballs in our stomach. Uh, just one example of a huge uh, strongman. This is probably the biggest one that really kicked off uh, bodybuilding 
interest and a craze in the uh, early 20th century was a Prussian strongman, Eugene Sando. He popularized exercise by actually opening gymnasiums. This was something people didn't have, you know what I mean? You did not yep. join a gymnasium. They did not exist really at the time. Uh, rich people might have equipment in their house, but no, uh, if you were on the street, you were expected to uh, work out the natural way, which was to eat very little and you know work 16 hours a day. Yes. Uh, he also sold exercise equipment and food supplements. In March of 1911, he was given by royal warrant the title of Professor of Scientific and Physical Culture to King George V. Also had a, a, a bit years back where he lifted a platform with 19 people and a dog on it. Yeesh. Wow. You know? Yes. Strong guy. Now, do you think that maybe, I know you're going to school now, but do you hmm. think maybe you can get them just to make you a professor of scientific and physical culture now? Like, just sure. bestow it? Just hook me up, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I need to find uh, King George, but he's, it's probably King George the 18th by now. By now, I'd say, yeah, it's up there. <laughs> But uh, back with Charles here, at 19, he was 5 foot 10 and 170 pounds of chiseled muscle. Uh, seeing the statue of Atlas atop Atlas Hotel in Coney Island, he decided that he should replace his last name. And thus, he became Charles Atlas. Uh, he spent a lot of time at uh, Brooklyn's Diker Beach. Uh, one day, he noticed uh, some people in a boat offshore waving. Uh, they were waving a white shirt frantically. So Charlie jumps in, swims out about a mile, uh, and he finds out that they lost an oar. So, uh, you know, don't take rowboats into the ocean. No, it's a very bad idea. You get something with a motor, please, yeah. Maybe, yes. <laughs> uh, he tied the, the bow rope around his waist, and he swam them back to shore. And this feat was recorded in uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not, a, uh, which is a Sunday uh, newspaper feature about amazing stunts uh, containing weird facts. I don't think Dean Cain was hosting it back no, then. No, not back then. No. It actually <laughs> was the, the original John Ripley was still there. Yep. And not not Jack Palance either. No. <laughs> Believe it or not. I used to love that guy. Yeah, that was like an obscene phone call for I him. I know. <laughs> uh, now, another time in Bayville, Long Island, he swam a boat out uh, to a kid trapped on a floating platform, platform even, and then swam it back with the kid in the boat. Another time, coming home from practicing gymnastics at the YMCA, he rescued a woman from being taunted by some men. And yet another time, he actually lifted a car off the ground enough so someone could change their flat tire. What a guy. What a guy. We can't say how true all these stories are, except to say that they are absolutely true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but at least, uh, to, to, to be fair, at least the first one is recorded in Ripley's Believe It or Not. The point of the story is Charles Atlas was a stand-up fella. Or at least he presented himself that way. Yeah, and I don't want you to think we're gonna, you know, turn a page here. Pretty much, you know, definitely the 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 uh, stuff that we read was gonna be uh, congratulatory of him. Yes. Yeah, a little bit, <laughs> but uh, he, he does appear to have been a pretty a pretty good guy. So a decent dude. Yeah. I don't want you to think we're gonna turn out that he, uh, you know, was uh, kidnapping children on the side or anything. But no. Anyway, by the summer of 1911, Charles got a job demonstrating chest expanders in a Broadway store window. He was hired along with another strongman, Earl E. Lederman, who had won Bernard McFadden's perfectly developed contest in 1903. Both were hired by Abe Boches, a five-foot-three powerhouse appointed by President Woodrow Wilson to be his personal health advisor. So these strong men, they were like somebody. To, you know what I mean? This, this, mm -hmm. you needed, if you needed to get healthy, you contacted a strong man. 
Uh, when, Carl's con when Charles's contract ended, he continued to demonstrate chest expanders on his own. I guess on the street corner. I'm not sure how that worked. <laughs> Eventually, he caught the attention of professional strongman Adolf Nordquist, who offered him a 12-minute set of strength and balancing act at a Coney Island theater. The show ran for several months, and then Charles opened his own show under the name Charles Atlas. This was the first official use in a theater right off of Surf Avenue, which if you've ever been to Coney, that's like its main drag. Uh, that's where you want to be if you're, on, if you're in Coney Island. He wore a leopard skin leotard and white boots, and his act consisted of bending railroad spikes, tearing telephone books in half. Uh, telephone books for our younger listeners were big, chunky books that would have been really hard to tear in half. Uh, don't want it to be a mystery. Like, what's the big deal? You know, uh, and li uh, lifted two men aloft at the same time, and he would lie on a bed of nails, eating a banana, while three men stood on his chest. I mean, is that huh. really a feat of strength or just a no, feat that's, of? No, that's that's a freak show. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's like it's. You see where they show it, it, it cross genres, though. You know, it was like. <laughs> You know, anything to entertain the crowd. I'll eat a banana on a bed of nails. I'll uh, throw, a, throw a guy in the air. It's, uh, it's all the banana, too. That's the main part. Well, that's probably, yeah. Charles did recall years later that women would faint from this stunt. So I bet, the, you know, the banana brings up all kinds. Anyway, <laughs> and it sort of puts a new perspective on this whole strongman routine. Like I say, it's, it's a lot more than just lifting a weight or whatever. Bending a railroad spike, like, wow, that's not, that's Yeah, pretty, that's pretty hardcore. Uh, also during this time, you know, he wasn't that much big of a celebrity. He did janitorial janitorial work around Coney Island for a reduced price on hot dogs, which were hot dogs were a nickel. So what was the reduction? I mean, I guess a penny, you know, maybe yeah. anything. I guess would work. I mean, during this time, a penny was an amount of money. I, I get to be fair, but it just seems like how much would he? How much was he getting anyway? Uh, during this time, he met Margaret Cassano, and they would wed in 1918. Now, this was my speculation here. I, this is nothing, no information, but I thought it was interesting at this time. He didn't join or get drafted by the Army during World War I. I mean, so many people, young people, yeah. exactly at his age, uh, would have did, and he would have definitely, I would have think he would have passed the health requirements. Oh, certainly. And he was a totally naturalized citizen, not that that ever stopped the Army from accepting members anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh so I don't know why. I couldn't find any reason why. Uh, and the fact that it wasn't mentioned is kind of notable to me. That's like suspect, yeah. Yeah, it's something. It could, it could be a million reasons, a million good reasons. Uh, you know, maybe a sick relative or, you know, maybe he didn't meet the Flat maybe, feet? I don't know, yeah. Maybe he had flat feet, exactly. We Maybe he didn't meet the health requirements, which were a lot different back then. But I, I just wanted to say it because the absence of any information was strange to me. Yeah, because especially since we've been doing so much research around world, the world wars, mm -hmm. and almost every creator we discuss, it's like, well, they did serve. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, so they, it is. They either they either served or there was a very good specific health reason, reason why they why didn't. They didn't. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, and and I mean, this, this yeah, is Charles it's, Atlas. It's like getting Superman in the army. You know, yes, what I mean? it's conspicuous by its absence. Yeah. Uh, now, after Charles Strongman show ended, he was approached by his old coworker Earl Lederman, who enticed him with a new show idea. Titled uh, Orpheum Models, they would cover themselves with powder and hold poses for packed audiences, which sounds like a blast. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> the show actually ran for 44 weeks. Uh, slim pickings for entertainment in the days before radio. Exactly. Watching a, watching a strong guy pose was something to do. Covered in powder. Night. Yeah. Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> now, after the show, uh, Liedemann went uh, to start his own mail-order bodybuilding course. Uh, at this point, Charles had a new son. He had a son uh, named Charles Jr., 
born December of uh, 1918. Uh, he had a daughter named Diane who followed in 1919. Charles sold some of his photos that used to be in Liederman's bodybuilding course materials. Um, a younger fellow named uh, Joe Bonomo had uh, been one of Charles' acolytes during his early strongman days. And by 1918, he was a uh, muscular artist model. Uh, the New York Daily News ran a contest to find the uh, quote-unquote modern Apollo, and the art students in his class entered Joe without his knowledge. Joe, uh, he knew nothing about it until he got the letter from the Daily News explaining that a sketch was no good and they required a photo instead. Um, now, Joe was going to throw the letter away and forget it, but then he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he Basically, his it's mind. a... <laughs> Well, you ought to throw this out. Nah. <laughs> nah. Uh, <laughs> Joe tracked down Charles and asked for his help to win this contest. Charles considered entering himself, but then decided that he was no pretty boy. Uh, he loaned Joe his old leopard skin, leopard print leotard and showed him some of his poses. Um, on October 30th, 1918, Charles's 26th birthday, Joe won the contest. Uh, he won a grand and a 10-week movie contract uh, starring in the silent film A Light in the Dark with Hope Hampton. So this would make him Charles Atlas's first successful student. Yeah, and he won a grand in 1918. That's a lot of money. That it was a serious amount of money. That's like I can now buy a home type money. That was yeah, or could come close to it. So this was serious contest here. This was not like your uh, you know 50 bucks for the best drawing type thing. Yeah, um, that's actually it says that that has the same buying power as seventeen thousand six hundred and twenty two dollars and seventy seven cents. Really? Wow, that's uh, pretty serious. Pretty serious stuff. Maybe not. Maybe not the uh, home buying stuff. I thought, but a car buying. But what it how? But it, oh, yeah, it's it's very true. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, this is and and you see this happen again. There's a contest coming up right here, uh, very soon. In 1916, uh, from 1916 to 1921, Charles was primarily an artist model, having been discovered by society sculptor Mrs. Harry Payne Whitney, formerly Gertrude Vanderbilt, who paid him a hundred dollars per week when other models made fifty cents an hour. And hot dogs were a nickel, so mm -hmm. never had doing no more janitorial work. And yes, <laughs> this is the same Mrs. Whitney that would start the Whitney Museum in New York, which just recently had a refurbishing, and now it costs a mere twenty-five dollars to enter, Chris. So make sure uh, you visit that. The whole family can go. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. It's a great <laughs> time. Uh, he posed for over seventy-five statues, and his body, Charles Atlas's body, can still be seen today. Here are just a handful of them. He is. Alexander Hamilton outside the U.S. Treasury Building in Washington, D.C. He is the Dawn of Glory statue in Brooklyn's Prospect Park. He's Civic Virtue, which actually is three figures, but he is all of them in Greenwood Cemetery, Brooklyn. Uh, Washington Heights Inwood War Memorial in Mitchell Park, Inwood in New York City. This may have been the first piece Mrs. Whitney created with Charles Atlas as a model, but no one's positive. He is George Washington of Washington Square Park in New York City. And, you know, many others, you know, uh, 70 others or more. And Miss Whitney wasn't his only patron. He also posed for artists like Arthur Lee, Fred McMoneys, Tony Salem, Sterling Calder, and James Earl Frazier. Wow, he was a very prolific model. Yeah. Um, now, in 1921, Bernard McFadden, our old friend here, uh, he ran a photo contest to find America's Most Handsome Man through uh, Physical Culture magazine. The winner would get a grand, and presumably their photo in the magazine. <laughs> One would imagine, right? Yeah. Um, Charles won. 
Suddenly he's a pretty it. boy. He doesn't mind being he, a pretty boy all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. He 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 uh, he, he tweezed them eyebrows and uh, <laughs> he got in there. Uh, now this was fortuitous because uh, they were in pretty big debt at the time. Yeah. Uh, in October 1922, McFadden held another contest for the world's most perfectly developed man. Uh, this would uh, actually involve a involve a sem- uh, ceremony at Madison Square Garden, and it would attract 750 contestants. Wow. One of them was, wouldn't you know? Joe Bonomo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Charles had a friendly wager of 10 American dollars. Uh, from uh, Bonobo's autobiography, The Strong Man, we got a quote here. We both wanted to win for we realized what it would mean for our careers. And just for the record, I had my own leopard skin, so now we were starting even. The contest opened with great fanfare, with entries from all over the world, many of them splendid specimens of manhood. However, when the contest progressed through the preliminaries, Charlie and I were running neck and neck, tied for first place. We remained tied through the eliminations, and the finals were set for the following Monday night. I remember that Monday all too well. Something told me not to go to work at the studio that day, but I went anyway and broke my leg, crashing my motorcycle. As the judges refused to alter the title to the world's most perfectly developed man with a broken leg, Charlie not only won the title and the cash prize, but my $10 as well. We still kid each other about that. I claim he won by default. Charlie says he he could have broken both his legs and still would have beaten me, but it's all in good fun. Uh, Now, this one was huge for Charles, and in 1922, he had his name legally changed to Charles Atlas. Instead of just being a stage name, this is now his name. Um, McFadden canceled all future perfectly developed man contests. You know why? Wow. Charles is going to win them anyway. That's all. What's the point? (laughs) And I don't feel like peeling off another couple of grand, probably, but anyway. (laughs) Well, that details. details. Uh, Now, Charles was offered $1,000 or the... Or the lead uh, role in a forthcoming Hollywood movie, uh, which is The Adventures of Tarzan. Uh, his wife and mom didn't like the scandalous Hollywood of the 1920s, so he took the money instead, and he remained in Brooklyn. Uh, that role would ultimately go to Elmo Lincoln, who would uh, star in the original 1918 movie Tarzan of the Apes. Which really made more sense, really kind of bring some continuity to it. But uh, Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is not the first time that he has to uh, hang back in, in Brooklyn, but we'll get to that. In 1922, Charles met Dr. Frederick Tilney, a homeopathic physician from Norwich, England. He'd emigrated to America with his wife in 1920. He worked for Winchester Rifles for a while, and after winning a writing contest given by Waterman Pen Company, he was hired by Bernard McFadden as a course writer. Dr. Tilney came up with the idea of a mail-order bodybuilding course with Charles Atlas. They'd split it 50-50. Tilney wrote, the health, Tilney wrote the health and dietary advice Atlas put together an exercise regimen. They titled the course Health and Strength by Charles Atlas. For six months, they worked out of Tilney's home, but after their first ad in physical culture, they were able to rent an office. When the office secretaries went to lunch, Tilney and Atlas would change into swimsuits and exercise for an hour. Tilney remembers in his book, Young at 73 and Beyond. Uh, this is a quote. One day a man came bursting into Atlas's office, stood there amazed watching us exercise. He said, how much is your course? Mr. Atlas said $30 and went on exercising. The man said, sign me up. He pulled a roll of bills out of his pocket, peeling off three tens, and laid them on the desk. So I signed him up. Mr. Atlas said, as a rule, we have to give you a sales talk before we enroll a student. Would you mind telling us how you decided so quick? The man said, I just came over from Newark calling on a competitor of yours. I had previously sent for his catalog, where he showed one photo of himself, 
and, his, and in his booklet he condemned smoking. I went to his office and had to pay $10 for a private consultation. I noticed he was sucking on a big fat cigar, and he had a terrific paunch. I got so disgusted I walked right out and came over here. I burst into your office, and what do I find? Both of you fellows really practicing what you preach. So you get my money. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 1924, they were invited to Bermuda to give some health and strength demonstrations. Uh, this included uh, Atlas holding a an iron bar in his teeth that supported two men. Wow. Ouch. Um, <laughs> uh, so dental hygiene is part of this, too. Um, now, Tilney liked the climate and suggested they uh, move business to Miami, Florida. Atlas, uh, unfortunately, at the time, he had just bought a house, and his wife really wasn't cool with moving to Florida, so the business remained in New York for now. Yeah. The same year, uh, this is Charles Atlas is now 32 years old. He uh, pulled six cars a full mile just using his neck. What? Uh, <laughs> wow. Sure. And, and, and this was for an event. I don't want to make it sound like this was for fun, but yeah. Well, <laughs> how? Okay. <laughs> they were just in his way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, uh, what set Charles Atlas's exercise regimen apart from the mail order? Uh, the courses were that, that didn't require any special equipment or uh, purchase weights. All the exercises relied on muscle muscle tension that can be done at home using a chair or household items at the time. I remember somebody saying like if you cup your hands together like you like you like you put one hand facing up and one hand facing down then you curl your fingers and you pull. Mm-hmm. That's your dynamic tension. There you and go. That's uh that's one of your uh, that's one of your workouts. Um, now. At this time, the competition in mail order bodybuilding courses was steep. Uh, we have Earl E. Leiderman sold a thousand courses per week and employed three hundred secretaries. Bernard McFadden, our old friend here, he had a uh, bodybuilding and health empire centered around his Physical Culture magazine. I mean, he he was the big Kahuna. He was the dude. Bernard yeah. McFadden was the guy to know, and uh, yeah. Now, in September 1928, Charles went to the Benjamin Lanzone Advertising Agency to help out with some marketing. In uh, the account, uh, apparently the least profitable was given to Charles P. Roman, a 22-year-old graduate of New York University. It was Roman who uh, rearranged Charles Atlas's ads to look like the more familiar ones that we'd see in the comics. Uh, a large fo- uh, photo of Charles flexing his muscles, a lot of eye-catching copy, and a comic strip. And that comic strip is... The insult that made a man out of Mac. Uh, this uh, condensed four-panel version uh, began with a uh, "Hey Skinny." Hey Skinny, but it was the same thing. It made a man yeah. out of a Mac. Uh, now this ad is a retelling of Charles' earlier mishap, the one that we discussed earlier that we decided is 100% fact. Yep. This is the uh, lifeguard, but it ends with the victim uh, getting Charles Atlas's course, bulking up and socking the lifeguard in the face, which makes him the hero of the beach. Of course. Everyone loves so, the yeah. guy that punches another person out. You, know, you, you win. He must not have gotten Count Dante's course. No. Um, right. yeah. <laughs> no. We could not find out who drew this comic. Uh, it might have been Roman himself. Uh, it was altered slightly here and there over the years, more, more than likely done by anyone in the office or possibly maybe at the print shop. Yeah. Uh, the increase in business was immediate. Thousands of orders began pouring in. Uh, Tilney was still thinking about moving to Florida, uh, so Charles Roman bought out Dr. Tilney's partnership in uh, for 500 bucks. Yeah. Uh, the Tilneys would it move to Miami. Seems really low, don't you think so? Doesn't like, it? Yeah, Doesn't but, it? Nah, whatever. Yeah, maybe he really wanted to go to Florida. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and maybe like he he had a bundle of money. He was like, eh, sure, yeah, just, I just it's get just out gravy. Here. 
Yeah, so the Tilneys, they would uh, ultimately move to Miami, and they would ran, they would run a successful health food business for, for years to come. Uh, Roman changed the name of Atlas's bodybuilding course to Dynamic Tension and changed the instructional materials to include photos of Atlas doing the exercises. Which is amazing to think that these things didn't contain that, but I think... Yes, right? Which, which, and That's given it away, though. Well, like that, yeah. guy, that, guy, that guy was saying, you know, the, the, the pamphlet of the other competitor had one photo of him in the whole book. Yep. Uh, but I think that halftone reproduction, halftones would be photographs and in, in printing talk mm. was not really as good as it is now, uh, especially sure. for small runs. So I'm guessing that's why they avoided it, but I think they uh, pulled out more of the stops for Charles Atlas. He was doing well for himself. Uh, now, the stock market, you might recall, crashed on October 29, 1929, but this did not affect Charles Atlas's business. Indeed, Charles Roman brought a drophead Rolls Royce and a yacht in 1930. Jeez. Meanwhile, Earl Liederman's course and other courses, they began to wane. And, and there is a story with Earl Liederman that we could go on with, but we're not going to because we're not talking about him. Yes. In 1932, Charles Atlas came under investigation by the Federal Trade Commission. Bob Hoffman, former oil burner salesman who sold a weightlifting course mail order, uh, disputed Atlas's claims that one could achieve his physique with dynamic tension. The court case was quite a show. Hoffman brought in a bunch of weightlifters and dem who demonstrated how they'd bulked up, and then Hoffman himself did a handstand before the judge. Atlas merely brought in some former students and some of the hundreds of testimonials he'd received over the years, and the case was dismissed. Can you imagine seeing that? I, it's, I mean, this is like... This Watch is like, me do this handstand. <laughs> I, I almost, like, I should have gone into law. I didn't realize, like, part of it, you know, <laughs> that you might see a circus show every now and again, yes. but... You know, if it's if it's not people bringing in bags and bags of uh, letters for Santa Claus, it's uh, people doing weightlifting uh, routine. This came on. He came under the scrutiny of the FTC again in 1937, but he was cleared again. Basically, the dynamic tension was proven uh, by the court of law to be an effective way to exercise. In 1938, at age 46, Atlas pulled a 72-ton Pennsylvania Railroad car 112 feet along a section of track at the Sunnyside Yards in Queens. Like you do. Was I mean, was he was this guy from Krypton? <laughs> he you might don't have see, been. People don't pull trains today, you know what I mean? 300, 400 <laughs> pound guys. Um, the same year, he cleared sales of 500,000 courses. Wow. Initially, this advertisement still appeared only in physical culture and other bodybuilding magazines. After all, Comics did not yet exist. All this happened before comics. Yes. But once they struck big, these comics, Charles Atlas's ads began appearing right away, beginning in 1940. And now there were uh, two ads over the years. Uh, in 1941, we have the insult that made a champ out of a chump. A fellow by the name of Joe is at a fair with his girl when the bully, who has just shown his uh, his strength with the uh, ring the bell game, you know, you hit the thing with the hammer and it shoots up. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, he uh, insults and pushes him. Joe goes home, slams his fist on the table, and orders the free Atlas book. Joe then returns to the fair, rings that bell, pushes the bully down while his girlfriend reappears to compliment him on his new powerful physique. Uh, well, what a happy ending for one guy. Isn't that uh, nice? It must have taken, like, years. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, another version that came later from the 1950s was titled How Jack the Weakling Slaughtered the Dance Floor Hog. Love it. In this one, Jack is dancing with his girl, Helen. They are bumped into by a bully who comments on how puny Jack is, not even worth beating up. Jack goes home and kicks a chair, which is common in these. Love that one. And uh, sends away for Alice's free book. 
Later, the muscular Jack finds the bully, punches him, and wins back the admiration of Helen. This time, the words, hit of the party, float over his head, and not hero of the beach, and he basks in the admiration of the other dancers. Uh, I don't, I can't remember ever seeing the first one, but I have no. seen the second one. I don't know if it, it has to be online or in reprints, because I'm not Gotta be. normally, but this really, this tells me that I think these had to be drawn by Roman, right? Almost positive. Because they, yeah. they, they look, they look the same over years, you know, so... Mm-hmm. And the fact that, like, no one, there's no other name. I mean, I really scoured trying to find any hint of an information of who this guy was. I think it had to be Charles Roman. It's uh, just not perfectly defined, but anyway. Yeah. It's, uh... So Atlas's story marches on for three decades and is largely one of success. But then Charles Atlas developed diabetes inherited by from his mother towards the end of his life. In 1970, he sold his stake in the company to Charles Roman. The course still sold for 1930, the same for $30, I mean. Yep. The same price as in 1922, which is interesting. It was worth so a it's lot de- less. Depression proof and inflation proof. I really, I mean, I guess it, <laughs> it just it just cost 30 bucks, folks. That's all it costs. Uh, in late 1972, he began experiencing persistent chest pains and needed to be hospitalized. And on December 24th, 1972, he passed away. Atlas's measurements are buried along with a one-eighth-inch statue in a time capsule at Oglethorpe University. And you can still purchase Charles Atlas's dynamic tension course and several other exercise courses, as well as look at some classic ads and memorabilia at charlesatlas.com. Still in business, folks. Have not left mm-hmm. despite the uh, lack of comic representation. So, so, so that finishes us here, yeah. Yeah, we uh, we just covered uh, three different kinds of ads here that were uh, very prolific in the early days of comics. Uh, but where did these ads go? Yeah. Why don't these ads exist anymore? Why are comic ads now really not a, not much? I mean, outside of uh, the house ads, um, you might get something from a uh, like an online retailer. Sometimes you might get you might get a retail product like a candy bar or something. Mm. It's uh, but there's nothing like this anymore. And the number of house ads, and this has been true for years. It's like a dozen. I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's it's almost every ad page, and the thing is a house ad, which which makes me think to myself. Why don't you just run more, make more comic? You know what I mean? <laughs> I know it's like, and yeah, and the the prices keep going up, and they keep getting rid of ads. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, we're it's like we're, we're two negatives don't make a positive. Yeah. But uh, you know, we do. The market here did become much more inclusive. With uh, you know, we we threaten this episode about the direct market every so often, <laughs> and uh, we'll get to it eventually. Yeah. But uh, the market did become more inclusive, so uh, they relied less on advertisers to stay lucrative. Um, and also, you got to figure that advertisers see see such a closed system of right. uh, distribution that you know why would Coke want to do an ad in a comic book that's going to go to comic book stores when they can do it in Life magazine or or any magazine basically? Oh uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean you know you're just so you know I mean you're probably going to get a lot of traction still say selling novelties to comic book fans. Well, why spend your money there when you, if you can get an ad in, and we don't see novelty ads elsewhere either? But sure. you know, in theory, you know what I mean? It, yeah, but where it's gonna have a wider people people used to actually buy comics as impulse buys. I don't know if that's <laughs> imagine I don't know that. if anyone knows that anymore. You didn't used to have to go across town and into the uh, secret dungeon to get your comics. So uh, yeah, <laughs> pay, it's, it's, pay dearly for the privilege. It doesn't pay from a marketing standpoint. I think for a lot of you know, not just these companies that we mentioned, but 
any company to like bother sure. with what really is probably a hundred thousand people in America, maybe two hundred thousand people. It's not. It's not like huge. No, no. And I mean, and if you want to order something, I mean, we all have an Amazon.com, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so because you, you know, back back then, I mean, I think we've all sent away for something uh, from comic or magazine, and you know, you you fill out the you fill out a you know you write a note and you put it in an envelope or mm. you or you cut you clip the uh, you clip the coupon out and you put it in a mailbox and then you hope that it gets there. Yeah. And you yeah. don't have a, a phone wait, number to wait, follow. You wait. Up. You f- yeah. Then you forget about it and then it shows up. That's usually how. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you get and you get a dead monkey in a teacup. You know. Yeah. You're like oh. <laughs> Oh. Or you get a really, really chintzy uh, catalog. That's right. That you're, ex- that you're expecting, you know, this, you're expecting what the, the Death Touch book, and you just get, uh, you know, a pamphlet. A pamphlet that looked like look, typed on a typewriter from 1910 and has been photocopied <laughs> 55 times. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, you I mean, paid, I, you I, paid five dollars and waited six months for. I, there were a few things I sent away for, but one thing I actually sent away for, which could easily have been in the show, was sea monkeys. Sea monkeys, and it was the effect of dumping, you know, flecks of. Uh, it's like feeding your fish. Is the it's effect like putting of pepper in the water? Monkeys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the joy of dumping stuff from a packet into water, and that's uh, that's what I got out of it. Um, no, uh, also, you know, the, 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 you know, we we do come from a more cynical age, uh, so I think there might have been some more wide-eyed optimism back in the uh, the early days of print, uh, or at least wide print. I think so um, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, because I mean, you could build a, a UFO or a hoverboard. If oh, you yeah. see that in a magazine now, you're like, nope. <laughs> Oh God! I wanted that hover, that 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 hovercraft <laughs> yep. to be real so badly, and then I found out Absolutely. later that. But even even then, as a kid, I was like, "This this can't be real. They wouldn't sell this for a dollar." Like I couldn't drive around the neighborhood, and it wasn't, of course. It was like you know no. three inches big or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it, you know, and also looking at these old novelties, and I know you've seen some of these mm-hmm. novelties. We talked about the joy buzzer that never worked, and I used to have a lot of fly in the ice cube and. Uh, or the whoopee cushion that would pop if someone sat on it. That could happen too, you know what I mean? <laughs> or like, you know, you, you have the, the fake gum and it's in a pack that looks obviously fake, you know what I mean? They're <laughs> yeah, always... A little snap, yep. <laughs> I, I, think, I think at a time, though, that these, these pranks actually worked on people, though, because they were new, and I think that people had a different sensibility, whereas now, if especially if a stranger were to offer you gum, the first thing you would think is, what drug did he lace this with? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, you wouldn't be like, well, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> so, yes, dark stranger. Yeah, t- times have changed, and uh, the need for these kinds of things. Also, as we said, like, if you want to learn karate, you can actually join Tiger Shulman's dojo, or one of many, many dojos. If you want to work out, you join a gym. Uh, so we just don't live in the same kind of world where you know the options were more limited and if you you know for a lot of people in america if you wanted to work out you got one of these books you didn't know what to do there was no one to teach you to do it so uh i hope everyone enjoyed and got something out of that i know this was a little bit different but it's really something i wanted to do and uh, as usual it took too long to drag it out but it's here now and uh, if you remember any of these ads or if you bought any of these uh, novelties or any of these uh, self-help books, especially the uh, if you Death ordered punch. Dante, yeah, if you ordered Count Dante's Dim Mock book, please write <laughs> to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com and don't come us, visit us. Don't visit us. Teach us some of those <laughs> maiming and mutilating uh, pressure points, and we'll definitely appreciate it. You can also read our stuff almost every week on 
WeirdScienceDCComics.com, reviewing comics and the like. You can find me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And every single day, you got to go check out Chris is on InfiniteEarth.blogspot.com. That's Chris's personal blog where he reviews a new DC comic. Well, not a new one, actually, an older one, <laughs> but a different one every single day. Yes. Uh, and you just cleared your year hurdle that you've been gunning for, right? Yes. Was that I last Wednesday or Thursday? I think it was either, I think it might have been Wednesday. Yeah, it was uh, the one year of daily posting. And, yeah. Uh, Glad it's behind me. <laughs> yeah, and you're still marching on. You now you are, still, you know, yep. over 370. We don't know when he's gonna uh, he's gonna Pop. back off, but you, <laughs> I hope you don't back off. You really gotta check it out. Not only do you get you know the uh, review and some really great commentary about the comic, both personal and about the you know kind of the, in the context of when the comic came out. But you get rad ads at the end. You yes. actually get to see advertisements and you get to see a little bit. About what we're talking about And in the show notes I will have some links Where you can go look at some of the ads That we're talking about also So um, I know I got a couple of Count Dantes in there That's right I, I think, And it's <laughs> funny because they came in different sizes Like they were yep. slightly One was different. a two page mm-hmm. I remember the one page one really well yep. And I remember the Rectangular, the littler one, you know, there the was little, one, the half page. Yep. It's just like, just like his head and like, you know, the basic information, like learned karate, kill, you know, maim, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> boys, men, killers. Boys, men, murder everyone, gouge eyes, <laughs> order now, you know. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing works pretty well. It kind of reminds me when we did uh, Boris the Bear last week, and I had that <laughs> had that uh, thing in the inside cover where it was like, look out, this comic's very violent, and it was like, you might as well have just said. 13-year-old boys, please buy this. This is for you. This is for you. You need this. Lots of guns. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this week. Got anything else, Chris? That'll do it. Well, until next time, I want you all to keep it weird historically. If I could stick my hand in my heart, spill it all over the stage, would it satisfy you? Would it slide on by you? Would you think the boy is strange? Ain't it strange? If I could win, if I could sing, I love songs so divine.